Aspazdumai, which is welcome in ancient Greek. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the creator and the host of Daddy Unscripted. I'm happy to have you all back for another new episode with a very cool guest for tonight or today, whenever you may be listening to this. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I will just let you know because that was kind of weird. I spoke ancient Greek at the beginning and I will do it again at the end because I'm just a giver and I'm trying to expand everybody's minds just a little bit. If the only thing you walk away, well, I'll say it this way. If the only thing you walk away from this episode with is the knowledge of how to say welcome and goodbye in ancient Greek, then I I really have failed you, first of all, because this episode is going to have so much more for you than just that. But that's something I'm giving to you also. On top of all of the great things in this conversation with myself and Matt, before I get too far, let me give you, I'm going to give you two little things right now. One is a very important word about the Mockingbird Foundation, which is an absolutely awesome organization. And we've talked with one of the main members of that foundation previously on an episode that was Adam Scheinberg. And after that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a current, very new podcast that Osiris Media has going. So let me tell you these little things really quick. Did you know that music can accelerate child brain development and strengthen intellectual, emotional, and motor skills, as well as overall literacy? Bringing music into the classroom can help kids explore the mind-body connection and become comfortable with self-expression. Sadly, many children's music programs are lacking in the resources they need to let kids explore this creative space. That's why Osiris is happy to partner with the Mockingbird Foundation. Founded in 1996, the Mockingbird Foundation is a volunteer-run, non-profit organization dedicated to improving access to music education for America's youth. Each year, the foundation awards grants to dozens of music education programs and funds those grants through a combination of fundraising, publishing, and the curation of Fish.net, one of the earliest internet fan communities. Mockingbird is entirely volunteer with no staff, no salaries, and no office. So every dollar really does make a difference in providing children's music programs with the staffing, instruments, and support they need. The foundation gives over $100,000 to $150,000 every year in grants. To donate to this amazing organization or to learn more, visit mbird.org. That's M-B-I-R-D dot org. Okay, and now let me tell you a little bit about that new podcast, part of the Osiris Media grand catalog of podcasts. A brand new podcast by Osiris Media is The Politics of Truth. It's an Osiris podcast with Bob Crawford of the Avet Brothers. So Bob is also involved in another podcast with the fantastical Ben Sawyer, Professor Sawyer, however you call him, Benjamin Sawyer. And they have a podcast called The Road to Now, which is such a great podcast. But this new one, The Politics of Truth, is a new Osiris original podcast focusing on the 2020 presidential campaign. 
The mission of The Politics of Truth is to provide expert analysis from our nation's most reliable journalists, experienced pollsters, pundits, and historians with the goal of empowering our listening audience when they cast their votes in the upcoming primaries and general election. Keeping with Osiris's core goal of connecting listeners to the music they love, The Politics of Truth will also speak with musicians about the intersection of music, politics, and activism. The podcast is already live, things are already happening, and Bob has already sat with some really, really cool guests. So make sure you check out The Politics of Truth, subscribe, start downloading and listening to the episodes. There are episodes already there, again, so make sure you check that out when you're done with this episode of Daddy Unscripted. Okay, I'm sorry that I had to put that in there, but I have to let you guys know about these things. It's important to me as part of Osiris, and I'm proud of everything that Osiris Media is doing and continuing to build. So I just wanted to get that stuff out of the way early. Now I can start to tell you a little bit about this episode with Matt. This is kind of an interesting little intro and this whole kind of setup, because this episode with Matt Sinkowitz was recorded about a year ago, almost to the day. I am not going to get into all the details of it, but some things ended up pushing the release of this. I'm massively apologetic to Matt. I'm sorry, Matt. It has nothing to do with how great this episode is. I hadn't gotten into this episode for a number of months, and when I got back into it to start to piece it all together again, I was reminded of just how blown away I was with Matt's story with how honest and actually kind of divergent we ended up getting in this episode from what I completely thought it was going to be. It hopefully did not throw Matt off too much because of that, but we just kind of went in a certain direction, and a lot of that was spent on his relationship with his dad, and it ended up being, like I've said this time and time again, deeper than I thought it was going to go. And I love how real and earnest and just this great story of men, husbands, dads, like we have a very important job and we have a very big task. A lot of it isn't as daunting and impossible as it may seem when I say it's so big, because a lot of it can just be our realization of that and embracing it and doing the things that maybe even come pretty naturally to us. So I will let you know, Matt is the chair of the Boston College Communication Department, and he's an associate professor of communication and international studies there. He also is the author of a number of different books. He's the co-editor of a book called Saturday Night Live and American TV. He's been doing all this work with the studies of comedy he is an Emmy-nominated media maker and screenwriter, so he's a very smart guy, and he has, I mean, he's got a PhD, so it says right there after his name. And I can't thank him enough for having reached out to me originally to be a part of the show, and again, I can't say this with enough weight, Matt, I hope that the delay does not infer or imply or make you feel at all that this conversation did not mean a lot to me. I'm saying all this to him in an email as well, but I just want to put it out there. But I am very proud of anybody as a human that is able to 
come out of, battle through, make their way through difficult situations, difficult times, difficult relationships, and come out on the other side. So I am really, really proud of Matt and really excited to see how his life continues to go from here forward. And you'll understand more. So let's just go to the episode with myself and Matt Sinkowitz. Okay, I'm here today with Matt Sinkowitz from Boston, Massachusetts. Very happy to have another Boston dad on the podcast. So, Matt, welcome. Ah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the Boston connection is not the only reason Matt is here. I don't want anyone in all the other areas of the U.S. or the world, really, to think it's some kind of prerequisite or a golden ticket to being a guest on the podcast. But, you know, if you've listened to the podcast at all, you've probably noticed I have a humongous soft spot for Boston in my heart. Matt and I connected on Twitter. So once again, thanks to that social media platform for bringing another great guest to the show, which really essentially means thanks to the people. So thank you. I'm pointing out there <laughs> to everybody. So uh, Matt, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about what you do out there in Boston, and then we can jump back in time to look at the people in your life that may have helped with developing you into who you are today. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I, I live in Brookline, Massachusetts uh, with my family here, my wife. Uh, I've got uh, a son who's three and a daughter who's three months. Um, and, uh, and I live also with my, with my mother here. Uh, and I am a, a professor at Boston College. Uh, I teach uh, communication and international studies. Uh, basically, I'm a, a media theorist and a media historian. So uh, I write books uh, about globalization and media. And I also have a little sideline where I write about uh, uh, comedies and uh, sort of theories of comedies on, on screen and uh, sort of what makes people laugh and why. Uh, and I teach classes and, uh, you know, do other, other academic stuff. Wow. So you, you told me about your latest book, The Comedies mm -hmm. Study Reader, and, and yep. that just recently right. published? Yeah, that was the end of 2018. So that's a, it's an academic book uh, aimed mostly at, uh, at sort of classroom uh, adoption for people who are teaching uh, courses in, in comedy studies, which uh, might surprise some people, but that, that's a, sort of a growing, uh, a growing field. And so that's a book that uh, looks at classic theories of comedy. So you've got Freud and uh, sort of classic theories of irony and these kinds of things. And then it kind of runs those up against uh, contemporary media texts. Uh, so it'll look at uh, the Big Bang Theory and uh, and psychoanalysis, or it will look at um, Key and Peele and talk about race and comedy and this kind of thing. So uh, sort of takes really sort of uh, like c complicated theoretical ideas, but brings them into the realm of, uh, you know, stuff that makes you laugh as a contemporary media uh, consumer. Hmm. That is, that's so interesting to me because it's something that I I would just absolutely be interested in that, yet it's something I haven't really thought about people breaking it down in such a way like that. You said it's kind of a newer thing. Was that something then that you were able to study when you were in college or has it just kind of developed since then? Yeah, not, not really. I mean, certainly 
certainly there was i mean this, the, the the study of of comedy's been around for a very long time um but the growth of of uh sort of taking very seriously what we would call sort of lower culture, although I, I really don't like that that terminology. Um, it's been around for a while, but you know, I went to college in the early 2000s. It existed, uh, but there was you know maybe one class at at the university that would maybe touch upon some of these issues. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas now, uh, many universities you know teach seminars on on contemporary comedy uh, and contemporary comedy theory. Uh, and there's actually uh, there are universities that have majors in comedy studies now. Uh, Emerson College here in Boston actually recently started a uh, you can major in comedy. Um, hmm. So, you know, I would say that the the seeds of it have been around for a very long time. Uh, but as I actually write about in the introduction of this this book, um, really sort of after, you know, it's, it's oddly, but sort of after 9-11 and kind of the rise of Jon Stewart and The Daily Show as being this really important political thing, uh, as that sort of uh, kind of takes over, uh, people start taking comedy more seriously and, uh, you know, academics start writing about it a little bit more seriously, uh, even comedy, you know, that's on Comedy Central and the kind of things you think uh, academics might ignore. Uh, they start picking up and it becomes, a, what I would argue, a really important area of studies uh, in, in what we call cultural studies from the that's sort of uh, turn of the millennium to today. Hmm, that's so interesting. I think it it maybe was this week or last week that I was just watching an episode. And I hope I can say this either without getting sued <laughs> or maybe actually it will work because he will then mention my podcast on on his show. But I was just watching an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who Jerry was talking, mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld was talking with, but they were talking about comedy as a subject as in like people going to classes to learn how to do comedy and they were arguing or not not really an argument but i guess just kind of pontificating about the ability for a person to learn comedy in that way and it yeah. seems like they were both more kind of leaning toward the idea that comedians really they they kind of have a gift or a talent, I suppose, to see life in a in a certain different way than normal people to be able to turn all of those normal everyday possible things into comedy. It was kind of kind of an interesting conversation they were having, really. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, that, that's a that's sort of a deep philosophical issue. What, what I am uh, convinced of, and you might say I'm sort of professionally required to be convinced of, uh, but that we can certainly understand, uh, at least retrospectively, what's going on in comedy by analyzing it. I'm not sure, you know, whether or not you can take those seeds and build the comedy back mm-hmm. up. I think that's an interesting idea that certainly some people do. Uh, but I, what I really don't like is the, the the cliche that you know if you uh, if you uh, dissect a joke, you ruin it mm-hmm. or something like this. Yeah, I mean that's that that might be no fun at a party, but you know. That nobody wants to, you know, you know, you don't do academic studies at parties, right? Um, uh, I, I do think you can understand a, a joke in a way that's really satisfying, or or a movie you love that's funny in a really satisfying way by by taking it seriously. Uh, I don't think it ruins it at all. So that I would definitely stand by in terms of whether or not people who can sort of analyze comedy are are the people uh, are have sort of a capacity to create it. That that is probably a, a more complicated question. Yeah, and I'm just kind of. As you're saying this, I'm just kind of thinking of some of the things that are funny versus not funny. And I mean, you could almost do just 
like a semester of schooling on movies by maybe somebody like Jim Carrey mm-hmm. or or even Will Ferrell. Absolutely. Like one solid study on the full arc to this point of their careers. And you could analyze why movies like uh, semi-pro are just not really <laughs> funny and why something like Step Brothers is hilarious. That, that's important, right? That, that you, can, you can look at it sort of critically and, and try to sort of theorize what went wrong, what went right. Um, but also you have to understand that one, one of the great things and, and frustrating things about comedy is that uh, it's not just that people have different opinions on it because that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when you have a difference of opinion, it's like a complete break like I find it hilarious and you just don't find it funny at all. And it's very hard to like, like how could two people who otherwise have a lot of commonalities just totally have a different reaction. Right. Um, and that, that's actually, that's actually how the introduction of this book uh, starts. We, we, uh, it seems very arbitrary, but well, I mean, it, it is and it isn't. Uh, we actually analyzed this, this uh, YouTube video called how animals eat their food, which it's like a really silly thing. But the reason, the thing that inspired me to write about this is that I, I, the first time I saw it was with my wife and I, I, she nearly died. Like I almost had to call the hospital. She was laughing. Yeah. So like just uncontrollably. Yeah. And this thing just did zero for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like negative, nothing. I didn't think it was offensive or anything. I wasn't like upset by it. I was just, this mm-hmm. is, this is dumb and I'm not interested. And, and she laughed for like, like two or three days. And so, and like, seriously, she just start cracking up out of nowhere, like, you know, walking down the street. And so the, the introduction to the, to the book, the way that me and my, my co-author, uh, a guy by the name of Nick Marks, uh, you know, we sort of take that as a, an introductory idea, right? How is it th- this thing, you know, me and my wife have an awful lot in common, obviously. Um, and yet like, it's not just, we disagree, like we could disagree politically, but we could explain why, right? We disagreed about this thing fundamentally. And yet it's, it was very hard to say why. And so that's kind of, uh, that's sort of the jumping off point. You know, how, how can we uh, uh, think more deeply about this to understand what might be going on with me that is different from what's going on with her? Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, maybe it has to do with gender. Maybe it has to do with our personal, you know, biographies. Maybe it has to do uh, with the other media we consume. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of what that book is about. It's like trying to, trying to look at this, uh, this art form, which has this very strange subjectivity to it. Mm-hmm. Right, that that uh, uh, people have like wildly different ideas about what is funny, and yet still, you know, there are comedians who can make many, many people laugh. Right, it's not like it's a total crapshoot. Right, there's definitely some things that work and some that don't. Yeah, well, without even really having that intention or thinking that we might get that deeply into that subject, you you basically just sold me on your book. So it's it's available. <laughs> you have one new. New buyer, at least right here, I will definitely be picking it up. That's that's just a fascinating topic to me because that's the same. I mean, everybody has that experience, whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's with your significant other or with your friends or family members or yeah, uh, whoever it might be. It's it's all of us in a movie theater, and some people are cracking up at this part, and others just don't really get affected by it in the same way. 
Yeah, no, and the, the sort of the the opening insight is is let's not just be satisfied to say people are different. Right? That's that's obvious, right? Let's try to figure out a little bit, right? And again, it's not like a deep scientific sort of approach. It sort of looks just at at different theories, and then you know you can decide for yourself how how well uh, how how much you think psychoanalysis reflects you know the mm-hmm. way that you're you're thinking versus uh, irony versus something else. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who who have been doing or are currently doing comedy that aren't just going out there without some type of introspection into what they are doing and, you know, maybe looking back at what has worked or hasn't worked, whether it's within their own body mm-hmm. of com- comedic work or other comedians. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for talking about that a little bit with me. So let's go back in time now. And as I always say to all my guests, however far back it makes sense for you to go back, whether that's just to your dad or to your dad's dad, etc. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is uh, I I mentioned this to you to you before I because I, when you know uh, I came, I came across your podcast and I said oh, this is great this would be a great opportunity to talk about uh, fatherhood mm-hmm. uh, but then I realized oh there's this goes in both directions and uh, it's a little harder in fact to talk about uh, uh, my 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 parentage my father uh, and and before um, it, you know I I was extremely close with my maternal grandfather. Um, mm-hmm. like, uh, very, very close. And, you know, he, he is in, in, you know, I wouldn't say he was a equivalent influence, uh, you know, to my father, uh, cause I spent obviously much more, more time. Well, not obviously, but I did spend mm. plenty of time with my father, but, uh, my maternal grandfather, uh, played a real sort of, uh, almost a, a fathering role. My paternal grandfather, he was, uh, um, you know, he was uh, alive until I was in high school, uh, and we were not close mm. uh, at all. Um, he was, uh, it was a real sort of distance there, um, and uh, uh, that's that's it's it's very complicated. I mean, he was um, well. I mean, I'll foreshadow. Uh, I guess I you know, there's no no point in, in, in holding back. That the story with my father does not end terribly happily. Um, um, he, he eventually succumbed to, uh, a number of addictions, uh, hmm. yeah, alcohol being one, but not, not all my, my paternal grandfather was also, uh, at least an alcoholic. And, um, and we, you know, there was a lot of things sort of, uh, uh I don't know. We, 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 he, it's really difficult. I don't, I can't quite say, but he was not terribly interested in me. Uh, and, but it, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, it didn't bother me at the time. But I have very few uh, sort of positive memories of him. I remember him. He was, seemed like an okay guy. He um, Occasionally, like he would um, – how do I remember of my, my paternal grandfather? It's, it's, I remember a lot of just being bored in his house. Like mm-hmm. once every like, you know, six or eight weeks, we'd go up to Salem, Massachusetts, uh, like right over by the uh, – the the where the witches are but but actually no this is good it prompted me uh my best memory of that which is also one of my best memories of my father uh there's a place in salem called the salem willows uh-huh and uh it's like a oh there's much of willow trees as the name suggests but it's also uh an old-timey arcade or at least it was old-timey it's it's mm. less and less old-timey each time you go but still uh, still sort of, uh, it's got a lot of throwback stuff to it. And, uh, maybe my, my single favorite thing on earth 
uh, at least uh, at least pre-puberty, uh, was the uh, these pinball machines. Uh, and the pinball machines are they're they're baseball games. So instead of having flippers, you'd have a bat, and uh, uh, you know instead of the the ball coming from the side like a plunge uh, thing, like a pull thing, uh, there would be like a, a little slot that opened up in the top of the pitcher's mound was, and it would throw you pitches. Uh, and uh, this was. Close to my uh, my the Willows is right near where my my paternal grandfather lived, uh, and mm. so between Memorial Day and Labor Day, I loved going up there because I would talk them into going to the Willows, and I would put like dollar, I mean quarter after quarter, dollar after dollar into these machines, uh, playing these these baseball games. I think mm-hmm. they're from like the fifties and sixties, uh, and so and my grandfather did used to come and he used to used to like order order whatever french fries from the uh from like the fast food place there and uh and and he would uh he'd sit there with my father and I would play that game eternally that's probably actually the best memory i have of my paternal grandfather he would also um clip out things from the boston herald like uh sport sports like stats from the boston herald like every so often and send them to me and I don't know if this is because he knew we got the Globe and, instead of the Herald or if it was mm-hmm. – I'm not sure if there was any logic to it or not. I mean, he knew I liked the Red Sox. Um, and so, you know, every so often I would get like a, a clip-out picture with like a – I don't know, like a box score of Roger Clemens uh, uh, would come. I don't think it came in the mail. I think my father would bring it back. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that – those are the good memories there. Otherwise, I just kind of remember it was a cold relationship. Yeah. And just for some perspective, do you know around like what time frame he was born? Um, so he fought in World War II. Um, so, I mean, he would have been, you know, he would have been, I think he would have been young. He would have been eight, between 18 or 20 in, in mm-hmm. you know, 1943 or whatever it was. So, yeah. So, and I don't know much about his war experience. Again, my, um, this is a major, like I can give you my whole, my, 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 uh, well, I can at least give the version of my maternal grandfather's uh, history very clearly, uh, you know, sort of this harrowing tale of, uh, you know, his family fleeing the uh, Russia uh, during uh, pogroms. And uh, he, my grand, my paternal grandfather was, was born in Cuba uh, and then sort of uh, was, was thrown out of, they were throwing the Jews out of everywhere, right? Uh, so the, got, got thrown out of Cuba and, and shows up, shows up here in Boston. But on my paternal side, I, I, simply don't know um I, he was i believe he was born in the united states uh and his father was born in poland and the in between i don't know um it's funny because I, I i i it's not that i didn't spend time with him but we maybe never once talked yeah we said hello and maybe he asked me some perfunctory thing but uh as opposed to on my my mother's side i have these you know deep and uh, very complex uh, conversations and a real emotional relationship uh, that just was not present on on my father's side. Um, I mean, it's probably worth noting. It probably actually uh, has a lot of uh, impact moving forward. But my father's mother died in the seventies, so I was born in nineteen eighty, uh, and my father lost his mother maybe you know eight or nine years before then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I my paternal grandfather had a second wife. Um, but I, I get the sense uh, that that he never really recovered from losing, losing my grandmother, um, mm-hmm. and I think that that probably is also true of my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, there was something very. Uh, I mean, uh, it was just a cold, sort of a cold space, and um, 
you know, like I said, and, and, you know, alcoholism and drug abuse was, was part of it. Not, not mm-hmm. necessarily kind of, at least the, I didn't see it of the sort of violent variety, but certainly, uh, in the kind of, uh, withdrawn, yeah, ducking, ducking life and certainly ducking emotion. And I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's important to, to give, I do give a benefit of, of the doubt and that, I mean, you know, he has war experiences, which I never heard about, mm. uh, which I think tells you something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you specifically something, but it, it gives you a, a, a picture. Uh, and then um, I never once heard him mention my grandmother either. Um, and so, you know, the, the sort of coldness to me, I think, was a coldness to, to the world. Uh, you know, that's very interpretive on my part. For all I know, he was like this, you know, from day one. But uh, let's just say that he had had plenty of, of experience that, that would have um, – uh, you know, potentially led somebody to be a little bit withdrawn. Um, but by the time, by the time I came around, he was, uh, very much withdrawn. And, and like I said, I have these, I have these sort of few good memories, you know, playing, playing baseball, pinball machines in, in the Salem Willows. Uh, and I don't have any really bad ones. I just have a lot of cold ones. You know, I, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, what I remember him dying. I remember my father sort of pleading with him to, stick around, uh, you know, to telling him specifically, we've got more, more, more fun to have. And, uh, you know, he never, never, never got there. Um, you know, he wasn't young though. He was 80 years old. Um, but you know, now my father died a bit younger than that. And so thinking back on it, it, uh, you know, that sort of pleading that he did, I, it resonates in a weird way with me, uh, you know, sort of thinking back on my father. Yeah. And then, so you're in high school when that happens. So let's go back again a little. What was your relationship like with your dad when you were a kid? Yeah. So that's, um, you know, I, uh, it's, it's probably too pat to do it, but I, I, um, I tend to break down my relationship with my father into two, you know, roughly roughly equal halves, uh, mm. the first 18 or so years, uh, you know, nothing's perfect, but it was a, mm-hmm. a, a pretty strong relationship, a pretty good one. Um, uh, and I would say a fairly normative one. Um, and then, then the second 18 or so were like really, really hard and, uh, you know, really painful, you know, growing up, I mean, I was really, I was extremely close to my father growing up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we had, um, uh, I think we had, uh, well, it's hard, a, a, a relationship that I consider to be sort of a, a classic American sort of, of of its of its era or maybe even earlier sort of feel to it uh, in that we spent a lot of time together and we maybe once talked about something other than, other than sports. Wow. Like it was, I mean, it was what we did uh, and we, we were really close and, you know, uh, I mean, certainly he was, you know, he was a, a very devoted father mm. uh, without question. I've got lots of, lots of pictures of him, of him holding and hugging me when I'm, when I'm a little kid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, I, I just all, I mean, really our entire relationship was, was built around, uh, baseball, basketball, football, boxing. I used to go to the dog track with him, which is like, wow. You almost like can't acknowledge this anymore. I mean, in some ways, I feel like I'm, I'm I feel like I'm talking about the night like you did something wrong. Well, it, it's kind of it's been outlawed. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, and sometimes I feel like I'm talking about the 1950s. Like I, I would go, 
I spent a lot of time and, and I, with with my with my paternal grandfather too. That's probably one of the other things we did. We went to the random Taunton dog track, which now I mean it just sounds utterly yeah. insane that I was like a six year old kid and I, like I was reading the dog book, right? <laughs> you know, looking, you know, I could read, I could translate all the numbers on it, and you know, give you a give you a theory of the race. Wasn't that in? Wasn't there dog racing in Pretty Woman or some? super mainstream movie like that that sounds right yeah I, as i'm a media guy pretty woman's not exactly up my alley but yes i mean dog, you know not mine like, either just just so we're clear on that i just the, seem yeah. to remember that being not like yeah a, a pretty big movie from the late 80s and it being quote unquote okay at that time still i guess Oh, it was totally okay. I mean, it was completely. I mean, it, okay, it was unusual. I don't know how quite I ended up at dog dog racing so quickly, but it's pretty indicative. Um, yeah, it was certainly not. So taking your kid, like, and I would do that. You know, from age like four or five, I would go to the dog track with them. Uh, the dog track element was not a, like that meant that was not not a problem. At least where I was culturally, it didn't make any difference. The gambling element was a little bit like. You know, you, you take your kid to a gambling place. Yeah. But the fact that it was dogs being abused, like that was a zero factor. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nineteen eighty-five. It was completely, uh, it was completely a non-issue. And uh, yeah, I could, I could like when I was like six years old, seven years old. As soon as I could read, I could, I could look at the dog book and tell you, uh, you know, this this dog's probably going to go to the inside. This one's going to take the outside. So there should be room for the one in the middle to get a break, and it has early speed. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it would never work out, but like I could at least theorize it. I, uh, uh, man, that is strange. That is really weird. Now that I, <laughs> now that you're saying now, it out loud, now that I recount that, that is really, really weird. But that's like the. I mean, mostly, I guess we did more normative sports activities. We would, mm-hmm. you know, go to and watch baseball games. Uh, I, I grew up, uh, um, you know, one town over from Foxborough, which is where the New England Patriots play. So when I was, uh, and, uh, that's another thing that's changed, uh, just the, the, uh, uh, do- the, 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 the connotation of dog, dog racing has changed completely since 1986 or whatever, uh, or 1988. And so has the connotation of the new England Patriots. Oh God. Yes. Uh, if you said, if you, if you, <laughs> if you said new England Patriots in 1990, you meant losers, yeah. right? You meant like semi-lovable losers even sort of like they they had these weird uniforms with the with the the minute man hiking a football they're just sort of this weird thing uh now of course it's like an evil empire right um but i i grew up one town over so uh i i went uh you know the the year they went one in 15 i went to you know half the games and the next year they hired bill parcells this hall of fame coach my father bought season tickets so i went to Every single, I think literally maybe every single Patriots game from 93 to 97. All the Bledsoe years. The Bledsoe years. No, they drafted Drew that, that same year. And so we would do that. Um, we uh, collected baseball cards and we actually, uh, we would uh, buy cards as investments. This was during the baseball card boom. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we would sell them. We would go and we'd buy a table at a baseball card show, which is another thing which is nearly as outdated as, as dog racing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, we had this hobby that we did together, sort of buying and selling baseball cards. Um, we'd go to boxing matches. Again, it sounds like 1956. Yeah. And so we had this, like, uh, I mean, really close relationship. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, extremely, extremely tight. I mean, I spent tons of time with him. And, you know, for better and for worse, he was, he was, uh, he was a guy who worked exceedingly hard. He was a, he was a CPA. He was an accountant. 
at like a small-ish but not tiny uh, accounting firm in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, he, especially during tax season, right? That was there was only two seasons in my in my house. There was there was baseball season and tax season. Uh, and, uh, there was that slight overlap, right? The first two weeks of April mm-hmm. and, uh, the, the really only excuse for my father not to do something I asked was that it was tax season, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically, basically from the beginning of the year till April 15th. And so, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he, you know, my grandfather was a welder. He wasn't any sort of professional. He didn't go to college. My father worked mm-hmm. extremely hard to, uh, go to UMass and, and get a, a degree and, and get it, get his CPA. Uh, and he eventually uh, became a partner at actually a fairly young age at this accounting firm. Uh, and he would just work insane hours, particularly during tax season. You know, he would just be gone the entire time. And when he wasn't working, he was extremely committed to having fun. And as a kid, this mostly meant like, you know, the dog track and baseball card shows, but uh, there was a darker side to it, which I wasn't seeing, which kind of would erupt later. Hmm. Um, but so we were extremely close, but, but you know, and I, I, that's, it's like a, it's not super comfortable to critique, but I think his commitment to sort of uh, enjoying things when he was outside of this really sort of uh, overburdened work life you know, didn't leave a lot of room for, for more substantive, uh, development of, of, of our relationship. I mean, uh, far be it from me to, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't say what his, what was going on with him, but, yeah. uh, you know, I've got, like I said, I have a lot of really positive memories and, and certainly, you know, I, I would never critique his, his attentiveness, but there was something a little bit kind of, uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, there was, it was, there was a one dimensionality to, to our relationship, which I think, uh, I think would prove to be a problem over time. And you, you said you have a sister. Was it just the two of you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just me and me and my sister. And was she older or younger than you? She's a couple years younger. And I do remember, and this is actually something that resonates. Uh, so my, my son and my daughter have this like almost to the day, same distance as, as I do with my sister. Um, and my father, I remember him desperately trying to find ways to connect to my sister and like even being aware of this when I was younger, like being a being a eight year old kid and realizing that he was like like struggling to find ways to to connect with my uh, with my six year old sister, and um, it was really that sports thing. She likes sports, okay, and she played sports, you know, but but she mostly was uh, into girl stuff, right, into mm-hmm. little girl stuff, and he just sort of I really remember him thinking like even as like a kid i'm sort of sort of back editing this but like wow he's kind of struggling to like connect with her you know try to find stuff that she wanted to do with him and you know she would she would come to the dog track too sometimes but uh she was definitely not reading the book um she didn't know what the dogs were going to do like you did yeah that's, that's right she wasn't interested in in uh and you know i mean i guess she she, she kind of liked you know muddy so if, if he won that was good um but yeah, um, you know, I think that, you know, obviously you'd have to ask her about that relationship, but you know, my memory is that it was, it was a tougher one uh, in some ways than mine. I mean, it might be, I don't know. I mean, I might, I want to say in some ways, maybe they had to like work through it a little bit and maybe there's a little more substance there as a result. I don't know. Um, he struggled. I mean, I know he struggled with it and, uh, and it's something I think about because, you know, with my son, uh, we do a lot of stuff and I'm, I'm actually really careful to make sure that it's not just, uh, 
uh, that, that it's not just uh, everything's not just sports related, but that is a place where we click. I mean, I got a little kinetic little three year old boy, and we just we just click, you know, on that level. Like, what does he want to do? He wants to go play hoops outside, you know, this sort of thing. And I do, I do sort of think back to my father and remember him trying to trying to connect with my sister. And of course, you know, maybe my maybe my daughter will love sports just as much, right? But but it is something I think about. Um, so yeah, I mean, I. I, you know, I, 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 I don't remember, I don't remember anything too bad in terms of that relationship, but it was definitely different. And just as a side thought that I'm having here, mm. what was your dad's relationship like with your grandpa's second wife? Um, pretty cool. <laughs> um, oh, really? Uh, okay. No, I mean, cold, like, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like not much, not much there. Um, you know, I mean, my, it's, uh, you know, I never, I never met my grandmother. Um, she was, she died years before I was born, but, uh, I, I felt like, like, I definitely had a sense that there was a ghost there, mm-hmm. uh, that he never really, he never really got over. Mm. Yeah. I don't think he was too keen on my step grandmother. Um, I don't think he, I don't know. There was nothing you know, there was no, there was no gold to dig or anything. So, there was no, you know, they, right. They, yeah. There was nothing to be suspicious about. I mean, obviously they wanted to get married for whatever reason. I don't think he had any, like, I just don't think they got along very well. And I mean, ultimately, you know, you're, you know, you can't replace somebody's mother, obviously, particularly, uh, he was, he was in college when his mother died. And so I think, yeah, I, I don't think there was much of a relationship there. Okay. I was just kind of thinking about the, female relationships in his life and Mm. that struggle and uh, especially if it's completely kind of the opposite of what his even though it you're saying it was kind of one-dimensional the ease of his relationship with you yeah and just how that was not at all the way that it was with your sister and him and then having that feeling of missing his mom and not having a good connection with his dad's new wife. Yeah. Just kind of thinking how some of that could have all worked together to bring him down in some ways. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's not to, not to get too Freudian with it, but yeah, certainly there, there was something, um, something, yeah, it's clear to me that something, something went missing there, uh, when his mother, when his mother died. Um, and you could you could feel it when certain things would come up, and and partially in sort of as an absence, and that he never never like I don't I don't know anything about her really. Anything I do know about her is from my mother. Um, he just never he just never said. I mean, but you you could tell there was sort of this deep devotion to, to his mother, but yet like I know her name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen yeah. pictures of when she was like a, a small child, but I don't know anything about her, uh, and. The, the, which would make you think like either it was a bad relationship and I know it wasn't. So it must, it must've been a really deep one. Right. Uh, you know, like that's what explains that, that sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a bad metaphor or a good one, but just like, I never heard about my, my father's father's war years. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, it makes you think that, that he had things he didn't want to talk about. I think, mm-hmm. I think there's something else that, that, uh, I think there's a reason I didn't hear much about my grandmother. He, he definitely, it, it hurt him too much to bring it up. And, um, yeah, you know, I can't, I can't say why exactly. So you you kind of alluded to this, but do you think that what kind of started happening 
during what you see as the second half of your relationship with your dad, do you think that some of that was already happening during your younger years, Mm. like during those first 16 to 18 years of your life and you maybe didn't really recognize it? Or do you think that it all happened like right at once? No, it was, no, it was there. And there's a, there's a story there. Um, so, I mean, I, I think he was, I mean, I, I, I was, he was an alcoholic, you know, always, um, I had a very low awareness of it, but you know, some of it, I can just remember him going, you know, I, I like come into the, into the, the, the package store as we call it here, uh, you know, and he'd buy, you know, little, little nips of alcohol, like, like little, mm-hmm. which, uh, Oh, airport bottles. Yeah. You could, yeah. And, uh, that, in retrospect is to hide it, right? It's the only reason you, right, would pay. right. It's the only reason you would pay more. Uh, you know, it's, it's an odd thing. If somebody buys a large amount of alcohol, you think uh, they're having a party or at least it's going to sit on the shelf, right? It's going to be something that's out in the open. Yeah. If you're buying, you know, six little ones, that, that's, that, that says something else. And so he certainly, he certainly had that. And, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a, I, I don't mind doing it, but I think I feel the need to, to note that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not qualified to, uh, explain his, uh, his internal motivations or, or, yeah, yeah. you know, his scars, but, uh, you know, I think they're, uh, I mean, he struck me as, as somebody who, um, did not for whatever reason, I, you know, we can, there's a number of sort of possibilities, but didn't really like, didn't fully develop sort of a sense of purpose. Um, mm-hmm. I do think raising me and my sister w- did give him purpose, but, uh, you know, there, there, this sort of these underlying, uh, reliance on substances. And I think, uh, sort of, uh, never really establishing a sense of, of personal purpose in the world. I think it was always there. And then in the late nineties, uh, a few things, uh, sort of set off circumstances that allowed that to kind of unleash and and ultimately would would lead to the the sad part of the story and i can i can go right there unless you've got unless you want to want to go back from there oh no no go you go on ahead yeah so um you know so i I always feel the need to to at least uh you know reiterate that um you know i think you know i could tell that that uh you could always tell there was something something there was an anger inside of him and there was, uh, there were these, you know, he was, he was, there was, there was alcohol around, and, uh, but nonetheless, you know, I mean, like he was, he was pretty good and supportive and, you know, again, mostly, mostly interested in my, in my batting average more than anything else. But, um, you know, uh, extremely devoted to, uh, to my high school football team, you know, like, uh, uh mostly these things, which could, you know, I, I look back on as positive and considered positive, but, uh, again, sort of, there was a, felt like maybe something missing. Uh, and then, you know, what happens, uh, you know, when I, when I turn 18, right, I, I'm going to leave the house. I'm going to go to college. Uh, two years later, my sister is, uh, this thing that he devoted himself to, which was working. And I think it was working largely for the purpose of supporting us. I mean, I think it was, I think it was a fairly, um, it was, a, a, I don't think he loved his work. I mean, I think he tolerated his work, uh, in order to, in order to, uh, uh, support his family. Um, but you know, we, we left and that was one issue. I think that, that he, his sense of purpose was, uh, underlying it. There wasn't that much there. And you know, without me and my sister in the household, I think it was hard. Uh, and then the other 
thing is that he got extremely rich. He made a tremendous amount of money in the in the late 1990s. And uh, of course, this felt like a good thing in 1999. And uh, it's a cliche, right? That, uh, you know, people who, who get rich uh, often end up unhappy, but uh, I can I can give you one data point for sure. Um, I don't know if it's true of everybody, but it certainly was true of him. So uh, another aspect of my father's personality throughout my entire childhood uh, is that he would come home with get-rich-quick schemes, and they would range from like semi-plausible uh, theories about how to bet the NBA to like utterly bizarre scamish things, which I look back on and sort of find really kind of moral as kind of shocking to me that he didn't find this to be a problem. <laughs> like, you know, nothing, nothing that would like, like uh, sort of like uh, loophole theft, right? How can you, how can you copyright something that somebody else should have the copyright for? and and extort money from them these kinds of ideas almost uh, like buying someone's website domain that you yeah, exactly. know someone's gonna want to buy before they could so they have to come and pay you for it yeah a thousand percent so it would have been like squatting on websites but but yeah basically you know in, in sort of obviously this is pre-internet but stuff like this which uh you know i mean uh, no, I mean, he wasn't, wasn't kidnapping anybody or I don't want to paint it as any sort of like really terrible thing, but like, so, you know, some suggest things that really were kind of like a bit, some of them, uh, yeah, whatever. I look back, I'm really uncomfortable that, that he sort of didn't see a problem with it. Look, he was playing a game, trying to make money, um, uh, outside of, he was trying to stop working and he was, he was trying to solve this, this, you know, um, what he felt was a, a high pressure, intense job that he didn't like very much and was, you know. Uh, probably uh, encouraging various bad habits of his own. And anyway, um, so one, one day he came home and he, he had this stock idea and uh, you know, the details aren't so important. It was a, a, a sort of a thing that was an inefficiency in the market, which had nothing to do with predicting good companies or anything. It had to do with the structure of index funds and the way that options were sold and all kinds of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, we started this thing, me talking about comedy theory. Clearly I went in another direction. You know, I, I can't, I can tell you, but not, not a level that, not, not at the level that would make it interesting, but uh, suffice to say, uh, he was a, he was a really smart guy. <laughs> he was a really, really smart guy. And he figured out a way to, even though he didn't have any cash, I mean, we didn't grow up with the you know, middle class, I guess, but not with any kind of money to throw around the stock market. But he found a way to leverage these options and uh, buy these short-term calls on these on these stocks when they as they were related to going in and out of various index funds. And sure, sure enough, just like one, one day, he says, it, it works. And this thing works. And <laughs> It works at a high rate and it worked for one month and it worked for two months. And then he started, you know, you, you, you know, your money, then you have more to bet. It's just gambling, right? The, yeah. Parlaying the money. Yeah. To call it investment is, is, uh, is to be a real apologist for the, for the system. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not investing. I mean, he was just, you know, he was, it was, there were bets he didn't think he could lose. And sure as hell, like again, for, for the first 18 years of my life, everything he came, you know, nothing worked and then something worked. Wow. And I don't know how much money he made, but he made a lot of money in a really short period of time. And he had partners who went in. So, I mean, I know, I know a friend of his, uh, made over $10 million doing this. Wow. 
And he, my father, made a lot of money. And, you know, I say this, but it's a weird mixture, right? On the one hand, um, it's a very painful memory, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's, he's a smart guy. I mean, he really. Right. Like, kind of like having a yucky feeling, but still being in awe of what he did. It's absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's some pride in, yeah. in it. I mean, you know, it's not just that he figured it out. I said, literally, there's millions how many across the world, you know, tens of millions of people trying to do this every day. And of course, most of the people who make money in the stock market are people who have money, right? That's the, that's right. how it works. Yeah. And, and who, you know, okay. So this guy, my father, he figured it out. I mean, it, it, it didn't last that long, but it lasted long enough to make a few people, a lot of money. Uh, it was basically a, a sort of, uh, it was basically an accounting mistake on the part of uh, these, you know, uh, these giant mutual funds that uh, they were to close up. And, you know, if, um, if he didn't have sort of these liabilities, these weaknesses, he made more than enough money to live comfortably. I mean, hell, you know, there's this, I should, enough money that his, his kids and kids, kids would, wouldn't have been worried about college funds um, yeah, at all. Uh, but that, uh, you know, that, that's not how it went. That's not the, that's not, that wasn't his constitution. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think he didn't, he didn't have that kind of foresight. He didn't have that sense of, uh, looking ahead to the future. He also had substance problems and, um, the money just enabled everything. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he quit his job, which, you know, uh, you know, people say he shouldn't have quit his job, but uh, he hated his job. So I don't know. I mean, but not having anything else to do and having all this money and having the proclivities that he had, uh, right. that's a bad combination. Yeah. Uh, it was a really dangerous combination. And so, you know, uh, whatever, 1999, something like that, uh, there's this, yeah, a lot of this is retrospective, right? But when I look back in the story, there's a, 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 a switch that flips. And, uh, all of a sudden he's the, you know, he's the child and I'm the parent Hmm. and, you know, he's, uh, you know, he, he is asking me for advice because he's getting into these spots that he can't tell me about. He's got the sense to know he can't explain the situation. And, uh, you know, I think my, uh, I think, I think it's unhelpful to give the specifics of it, but some messy, messy situations involving, you know, stuff that, that, you know, uh, things that, that one might, you know, feel shame about. And again, I, I, you know, enough to say that the kind of stuff that I felt, uh, well, not the kind of, how do I want to put this? Uh, I thought this was, I felt very, I, 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 I had grown up, uh, you know, sheltered might not be quite right. I mean, I spent enough time at the dog track, but I was, I was a young 18. I hadn't faced a lot of responsibilities mm-hmm. in my life. I, I grew up in the suburbs, uh, you know, uh, sort of safe street, safe high school. I, uh, you know, I, I, I thought this was still my time to be asking, you know, uh, semi embarrassing questions about how to, how to take care of situations that I, I wish I hadn't gotten myself into. And, uh, I don't know, freshman, sophomore year of college, all of a sudden he's got these things, that he's at, like, he needs help with, he needs help. And I don't have, uh, what's the, is there, I, I mean, I am, I'm very tempted to, to engage in some, uh, some stronger language, right? I, I have just no clue at all how to respond to these things. Um, these, you know, these problems that he's having that, that he's alluding to, you know, he knows not to say it straight out. I'm being cryptic and I just can't avoid it. I can't help it. But, uh, you know, he's done, th- he's done things wrong. He's, he's made big mistakes. Uh, he's, 
getting himself into trouble he can't handle. He's he's using harder drugs that he can't control. And I mean, I hadn't even smoked a joint at this point in my life. I don't have a clue what the hell to tell. I had no idea, like just absolutely none. And that happens like when I'm in college, you know, and, uh, it's a weird situation because on the one hand, you know, I was sort of geared up to try to figure out how to pay for college and whatever else. And then one day he came home and just wrote a check. And so I'm like, I'm very happy about this. Right. But then at the same time, I, I, all of a sudden, uh, it, it takes me a while to realize it maybe, but I, I'm taking this like pretty intense burden right? where like, I, I don't have him as any sort of fatherly resource at all. And it's going to become more and more of sort of, uh, you know, he's going to desperately ask me to help with things that I can't help him with, you know, to, to add to the sort of soap opera element of it. Uh, my mother gets, uh, gets breast cancer during this period of time, like at exactly, exactly the same age that, that his mother died. Oh my God. Uh, like he was a freshman or sophomore more in college. This happens, you know, my mother gets sick, uh, you know, this doesn't help his situation at all, right? I mean, he's getting clearly getting flashbacks, and that's not the right term. It's too technical, but you know what I mean. PTSD, uh, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, all of, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, it's really, it's obviously terribly traumatic to lose. It's hard at any age, certainly harder when you're younger. And so my mother is getting sick, or she is sick. Um, he's just in this sort of spiral, and, uh, um, you know, you know, I could fast forward to the very end and, you know, there's a lot of kind of ups and downs, but it's mostly downs. Uh, you know, he's, he goes through sort of a series of kind of awful addictions and he does some really, really bad stuff, man. Like really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people in that situation make irresponsible decisions and disrespectful decisions. And uh, eventually all, all the, all the money's gone, right? Millions of dollars. Um, uh, he's able to, I mean, my, my, he and my mother live together till the end, but the, that relationship gets real complicated. I would not speak to it beyond that. Cause that's her place, not mine, but yeah, but let's, I'm sure you know, I can, I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. And, um, you know, by the end, he's somebody who's, you know, he's, he's, he's 65 years old, but he, he seems much, much older. And, um, Mm-hmm. You know, he's like sort of occasionally kind of like crying for help. And at, at a certain, I mean, one of the hardest, you know, for the first five, six, seven, eight years of this, um, this sort of downward period, mm-hmm. I was, I was, it was, uh, probably the number one thing in my life was trying to see if I could help him. Right. And, uh, you know, I couldn't, there was. I couldn't, I mean, you know, it was, uh, it was at the beginning of it, I was, uh, you know, far too young, maybe, you know, another 18 year old, maybe, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. certainly the 18 year old I was, was in no position to try to try to sort of help somebody dealing with, uh, uh, serious problems. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, I just couldn't possibly do it. And eventually, you know, I had to, um, I had to say, I'm going to stop helping. I, I, I never stopped mm-hmm. talking to him. I never ended our relationship or anything like that. Uh, but it got to a point, I mean, I'm 30, I'm 38 now. So maybe it was when I was about 30 and I just said, I'm never going to try. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll help you, uh, you know, I'll help you, uh, replace your windshield wipers, but I'm never going to, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to try to help you on any of these emotional levels. Cause it's just never and only, mm-hmm the the net effect is is just me going down and you never coming up right and that was a a really difficult thing to do and i went through a, some terrible 
periods of depression. I, I wouldn't blame him exclusively. Certainly, you know, some of it's just constitutional. Some of it mm-hmm. is um, uh, other stuff going on. But uh, you know, I had a really, really tough time uh, for for quite a while um, in my twenties, and I had to eventually say, you know, uh, I'll 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 do what I can. I'm going to try to take him to uh, uh, a UMass basketball game. Uh, it's actually one of the, other than the Patriots, my other major, like really positive memory. Uh, if you follow sports, it might seem weird, but, but the university of Massachusetts had an elite basketball team in the early 1990s. Believing or not. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, they went to the final four, they were elite. And so this was when I was in the prime of my sports life, 1990, he was, a my, both my parents went to UMass, they met there. And so like going to these games and I was like, that was like what I really, Oh, I don't believe I didn't lead with that. It was such an important part of my life. Uh, and sort of till the end of his life, I tried to take him to a game once a year, this kind of thing. But when he would say that he, he needed help, I, I had to tell him like, I can't, I can't do it. You know, I, I can't do it. I, I devoted so much of my twenties to, to trying to, uh, help him dig out or just dig him out or, you know, what can I do? Come up with these strategies for him. I come up with these, uh, syllabi for improving, you know, various this or that in his life. And it, it just did, I don't think anybody could do it, but sure, sure as hell I couldn't do it. And so by the end, he was a different person. He was kind of a shell of himself. He still had a, you know, he was still deeply caring. He loved his grandkids. I mean, my, my sister has two kids and he, he did meet my son, Leon, uh, who's, who's three now, but he met him when he was a baby and, uh, you know, he loved him. I mean, he still had the devotion to children. It, it gave him that sense of purpose back, but it was just too damn late. It was too, he was, it was too late. He did not have the, you know, you know, he did some really, he did some really rough things to his body. And so by the end, it has been his mind. And so by the end, the compassion was there and you could, you know, he could, he did care. And I felt, I felt that. And that, you know, uh, was sort of bittersweet. Um, but, uh, you know, I never sort of got back the father that I had. And, uh, and then he died uh, a couple years ago. And, uh, yeah, it's a hard story. Yeah. Uh, you can say that again. That's, I mean, I can only imagine, but I cannot imagine like i said i i can understand the part of not having a father anymore i'm with you on that but going through that kind of upside down relationship that he was trying to impose upon you and tried to evoke out of you as you're only an 18 year old and going through to like 28 years old or so i i I cannot even fathom that. That's, I mean, I can only understand. I, I can't even begin to understand though, how confusing the emotions and the roles that you're trying to play during that as a young, as such a young man, that's, that's just, that's crazy, Matt. Yeah, no, it was, it was, yeah, it was hard. It's funny. It's so, and I mean, you know, we ended up talking, we've talked about this for an hour, which is, is fine, but it is funny, right? Cause like, like I saw your podcast and all I could think about was the, the generation down. Right. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we talked about this before we started recording, but um, you know, I'm certainly not the only person with this sort of experience. I think it's, it's probably good, good to get it out there for, for those people who can, who can relate to it, but it's just not, it's not easy to talk about clearly. I mean, you know, it's uh Um, yeah 
And yeah, I guess, I don't know, you know, I, there's always this temptation to want to say, well, it could be worse. And this could be, right now. of course it could be, but um, this was tough. This was, uh, this was, uh, this was tough. And it's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I consider myself somebody in a, in a happy, healthy place, but uh, it's not something I'll ever get over. Um, and I had to lose my father right. twice, uh, essentially. That's the way I view it. Um, you know, I had to, I had to slowly lose him for, for 18 years and then, and then really lose him, yeah. uh, at the end. And, um, uh, yeah. But like the two halves that we're talking about, yeah. about your relationship with him, you know, now the, and, and this is the cool thing about this, about how healthy your relationship is with your kids and as a. I don't know. I don't know. This this may seem kind of ignorant or fairly rah rah of me, but hmm. the the work that you're doing now and your clarity of thought about everything that your relationship with him represented, and you know, breaking that like breaking that string. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you not continuing that with your kids. And rolling into your relationship with them in a much different way, that's that's the top of the mountain in my eyes. Like, you know, for instance, <laughs> as a kid, I was sexually abused by one of my nannies oh boy. who was a woman. Oh. And I know that is not the norm. Yeah. But for yeah. me, like, I'm not doing that. I'm not... I'm not the starting point or the continuing point of that chain, you know, and I'm not, I'm not like saying this to pat myself on the back or anything, right. but like, no, like not every son of an alcoholic has to oh, be an alcoholic. I, I, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. So like humongous kudos to you on every single day that you are. No. And and I don't mean yeah. this to sound like this is mean towards your dad, but like every day that you're not your dad is like in those ways. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's right. I mean, that's one of the, you know, sort of the philosophical challenges of becoming a parent. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Was, mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, I, I feel it is necessary to draw up my uh, fathering approach in some ways in, in a, like a near mirror image to, to my father because the, the outcome was so bad. Right. Right. But at the same time, I, I, I work to try, I try not to do that in the strict sense and that, and, and, you know, I do want to honor him in the ways that, that we, we did have, you know, positive elements. Uh, but I am just constantly on guard and you can only guess, right. What are the things, what are the, the sort of weaknesses I may have uh, as inheritance, uh, that lead to that bad place without being paranoid, right? Without trying to look at every single action and say, "Oh, well, this is what my father would do," and if so, not do it. So there's the, the sort of this narrow bridge to to cross, right? Where I have to be aware of it, right? I have to think about, you know, what what can I do to lay a groundwork to get to a better place in the long run? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, he didn't do everything wrong. Uh, he did a lot of things right. You know, he did a lot of things right. And uh, mm -hmm. if I just took the opposite, I'd be in an equally bad place. But, um, and one of the tricky things about it is that even though, as we discussed, I mean, I think that the seeds were, were sowed a, a, a long time ago for, for what ultimately would happen. Uh, 
you know, it, it didn't, it didn't explode until much later mm-hmm. to, to, to mix a metaphor. Um, and so, you know, I, I do live in certain fear that like, maybe I'm, maybe, maybe I'm laying, laying traps and I have to, how do I not lay traps? And if I think mm-hmm. too much about it, it can get very heady, but there are some things I have, like you said, I do think I have some real clarity on, on some aspects of, of the relationship that, that we had. And it also, I mean, you know, it's a real simple thing, but, uh, and hopefully I won't overreact the other way too far, but, uh, you know, I, I, to me, the most probably the most fundamental thing when I think about myself moving forward is that I, I got to be the dad. I got to be the dad till the end, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever that end is for me that I want to stay in that, that fatherly position. Cause I, I lost that without losing my father. And, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm sort of rambling now cause it's getting a little emotional. No, but that is, it is very cool. Like I, I think a lot about, and I, I talked about this recently with someone, but I think a lot about those different choices in our lives at different moments that lead us down these different paths. And some of them, you know, are just like these tiny little curved footpaths almost that veer off of the main big road of our life. And they can go off the road for just a small amount of time sometimes before they wind their way back. And whatever that footpath may represent, it's mm-hmm. just a little thing, a little offshoot from where we're headed in life. But all of those different things that we do that can mean a complete turn of the road, maybe even taking us in the exact opposite direction. And these major life changes or life altering decisions, you know, like if we, I don't know, decided to study something different in college, or we didn't take that job we were offered at some point, and maybe moved to another state instead, or like, didn't go on this major trip that we actually did go on, and met somebody really important in our life, like what would happen if we didn't meet that person, whatever it may be. And the road that you're on right now with that very clear mind and approach. And I mean, yeah, like it's it's obviously very smart for you to be aware of things. Like if I want to stay with this metaphor of the roads and maybe use it like in with driving, like what do they tell you is the smartest way to drive? Being aware. Like you're always supposed to use your mirrors, your side mirrors, and of course, even your rear view mirror. Like how important that is still to to look at what's behind you even so you always use your mirrors so you're aware of your surroundings and not just spending all your time focused and in tunnel vision like on the road ahead so it's good and important for all of that to happen but like your goal and your knowledge of what you are headed towards with your kids and your family and what you are seeking after is tremendous and is obviously going to be helped by that and like kind of like you were saying before we started recording about the people who may be listening to this that may have had an experience with this type of thing or may even be having it now that that they can learn something from this and from your life and i know it's always extremely meaningful and important so i'm hopeful that I really am hopeful that we, you and I keep in touch beyond this podcast recording. And seriously, like anytime that you need me to remind you that you're doing good and that you're keeping on the right path, I absolutely will be happy to be there for you to do that because 
and I've said this to a couple of people on the podcast, but I, I do really kind of like wish this was a movie <laughs> because, because I wish I was able to see how it all ends and how it goes, mm. you know, years down the road. And I, and I do want to <laughs> see that. I, I do yeah. want to see how fantastically you raise your children and how much you're learning mm. from your experiences changes things for the better for for you and for them and you did learn just like you said you did learn and develop so many other good things from your dad and i'm sure all of these other negative things are like so obvious and so blatant that they should be very helpful to you being able to acknowledge and avoid them because of how off you know, how off from center they are. Sure. No, I think you're right. I do appreciate it. You know, I think it's, I think it's good for the talking through of this. I mean, I, I don't know how many people you have in your life that are like that for you. And it, it doesn't mean that there are people you are talking to about these like heavy, deeper things on a day, on a daily basis or anything like that. But I think that's one of the things that has kind of started to become more of a trend in my conversations with some of these other dads, but how much we don't, even to a minimal extent, have those other men in our lives and and whether it's keep, keeping us accountable or knowing that we could need and and use some encouragement and some of that awareness that someone else may need help keeping on the right path. And even if it is just a little bit of that positivity every once in a while, that can be super helpful and meaningful to someone. No, you're right. And it's, um, well, it, it, it resonates just with, you know, that the, where I started the story with my father, right? It's a, men, men t- tend to be pretty good uh, talking about, about sports in the stock market, right? And not necessarily anything else or, or very much else. And, um, that is a problem, right? Right, it's a real problem. No, I agree, and uh, no, that's why I think what you do here is is really great because there's a temptation to just just you know talk sports and politics and whatever else, and uh, you know consider that anything that might open up emotions to be sort of off off limits and you know sort of uh, male male discussion, and uh, it's important that it's not. Yeah, I have a, a couple of extremely close, very good friends that I've had for a multitude of years. And I've gone on trips with them for like a week or so. And I'll come back and I'll say to myself, wow, I I didn't really get into anything deep with that person. And I was with them for X number of days. And we just yeah. kind of talked about superficial stuff. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, some of those times I've had, I, I've kind of berated myself afterwards because I've been like, I know that he's going through whatever X, Y, and Z in his life that's kind of heavy for him. Yeah. And I just didn't even poke the bear because I was afraid to, I don't know, like make him have a sucky trip or something. So I just avoided it and kept it light the whole time, which is, it's like, I'm ashamed of that. No, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's extremely taboo to, uh, provoke anything, anything emotional and, and certainly in any negative sense, right. Uh, in, in sort of homosocial male relationships, that is, it's like the worst thing you can do is, uh, you know, it's a party foul, right. Um, yeah, no, I, it's, uh, 
<laughs> you know, yeah, 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 how yeah. to solve it, but but I, I it, it is a problem. Well, us us men just need need to talk more. Yeah, hey, you know, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it's, it seems simple and it seems kind of cliche, but I think so. I, I think it would go a long way. Uh, it wouldn't solve everything, but it would it would certainly solve some things. Yeah, and and to some of this stuff, it really, and I think it's funny when men talk to each other and i think men sometimes do this with women and i i'm i'm gonna do some big generalizations right now okay sure but i think you know you always hear how women don't want men to try and fix everything you know when when i'm telling you about something that's wrong as a woman um, not me (laughs) but when a woman is telling us men about something that's wrong they don't necessarily want us to try and step in and fix it they maybe just want us to listen and i think for me a lot of times when i'm talking to other guys about stuff like that thought doesn't enter my mind at all but also for me i have to admit sometimes when my wife is talking to me about things I do have that little reaction pop up right away of of wanting to fix whatever it is that that is wrong and I, I a lot of times I just have to shove that down and like even gauge is that what she's looking for with this but I think with other guys a lot of times like we're just we're just talking which is good it's good if you can totally get get to the right places right um and you know, I think we're we're socialized to uh, to not get yeah. to them, or you know, to to dance around them. And I mean, it's it's you know, I can I can picture the picture right here. Uh, I think I'm fairly comfortable talking about these things, but it's a hell of a lot easier, you know, into into this microphone sitting in, right. a, in a fairly dark room off the side of my house, right, not looking you in the eye and uh, and not thinking about how anybody else might be listening. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can do it. It's in there, but it would. It would be very hard in other yeah. circumstance, um, which I mean is a, is a good argument for your use of this medium. Um, yeah, uh, you know that it has certain properties that 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 can can make it easier to get at some of these things. But of course, you know, a podcast is no replacement for you know sort of actual conversation. Yeah, it's kind of it's filling in a blank, I think, and. Yeah, I think so. So in case you thought we were just going to have this be an entirely heavy episode, let me just switch gears here. Sure, yeah. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your current little family and like, how did you and your wife meet and when did the two of you become three and then four? Yeah, so uh, I was in graduate school. Uh, getting my PhD at the University of Wisconsin uh, in hmm. Madison. And uh, my wife at that point already graduated law school. Um, uh, she's she's a, a slight bit younger than me, but a much a much better achiever. Uh, so, so she was already like well into a, a very successful professional career. Uh, and I was, uh, I was, I was making $12,000 as a teaching assistant. Uh, and, um, uh, we met, uh, uh, the, the Jewish community in Madison, Wisconsin is pretty small. Um, hmm. and, uh, uh, the sort of observant Jewish community is even smaller. Uh, and so we were bound yeah. to, to meet each other eventually. And, and we did, um, and, um, 
you know, so I don't know, we were, we were probably together about two years before, before we uh, got engaged and we got married. I don't know, nine, I, I forget the exact timing, but within three years of, of meeting, we were married. Uh, and then uh, there, uh, as there often is, I think it's a really a, a contemporary problem. Uh, two people trying to be professionals uh, in, uh, and this is in, uh, you know, I, I, I went on the job market in, in, in 2010 um, in the academic job market. And uh, let's just say it wasn't great. It's never been great. Um, but uh, jobs for professors uh, are, are uh, tough to get. Right, I think it's uh, it's many jobs like that. Certainly not the only one, but it's one of those. And you have very little geographic uh, uh, control, and yeah, it was sort of this great uh, uh, you know drama about where I would get a job and would it be secure enough that that she was willing to leave her very uh, good job uh, in Wisconsin. And um, I mean, sort of to, to fast forward through it, it took a few years for me to land a sort of what looked like a permanent post uh, out here in Boston ultimately would become a, a permanent post at Boston College. Uh, and uh, then I had to uh, drag her kicking and screaming out of out of Wisconsin. Um, she'd been there her whole life. She was really established. I felt kind of terrible, but um, you know, I mean, that's, that was, that was the line of work I was in. Uh, you know, if, um, you know, uh, if uh, when you go into academia, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's like going into uh, it's like going into the the, the, the NBA draft, uh, except you don't make any money when they pick you. Uh, but you, you don't you don't choose where you go, really. I mean, you have to be a very rare situation to have uh, more than one option on the table at once. So, you know, this is the place that that uh, I was offered a job. It happened to be where I was from. Um, very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's good in a lot of ways. Uh, it did sort of create a little imbalance in that she had to leave her home to go to mine. Um, but we we worked this out. I mean, fortunately, she's a tremendously talented lawyer, and she was able to get a really nice job here pretty quickly. So anyway, that part went well. But um, you know, we we almost immediately uh, said, okay, now we're ready. Let's let's you know start. Let's let's expand the family, uh, and that was a long process. Um, that took. That took years, and there were some challenges there. And uh, you know, I won't, uh, I won't detail as it's not my place to. But, but you know, it's enough to say that it, it was, uh, it was a not an immediate thing. And so, finally, when uh, when my son uh, Leon came on the scene three years ago, um, it was. I mean, it's always going to be extremely emotional. But like, this is something I was waiting for for a really long time, like a, a really, really long time with some difficult moments. You know, starting from my own youth, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, specifically, sort of, I don't know. It's just it's something I, I uh, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be emotion, but mm-hmm. given the relationship with my father, given that uh, you know it didn't didn't happen immediately, it's always going to be life changing, and I don't have anything else to compare it to. But I can say it was, uh, uh, you know, he changed everything in in every possible way, almost exclusively for the good. Um, you know, it's like uh, you know, it was. Um, I can't. It's hard to put into words. I mean, how desperately I wanted, I wanted to, to have have a kid, and uh, you know how immediately uh, Leon sort of entered and uh, changed my world, and and uh, you know uh, just sort of filled in all these blanks and created new problems and 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 created new challenges that were great to 
deal with and others that were really hard. And I mean, I don't know. There's no words that can really articulate just uh, sort of the both the upheaval and euphoria that came with with him coming on the scene at a, at a personal level. And um, and then uh, and then just three months ago, my gosh, three months ago, it feels a lot longer than that. Uh, my daughter, my daughter came, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that's that's where we are. It's it's really something. I mean, because that also changed life completely. Uh, obviously, any kid does. Oh, adding a second is it's something. <laughs> yeah, definitely adds something to the mix. And getting to see your firstborn with a new baby in the house is it's unreal. <laughs> it's really something. Yeah, no, and you know, it's most of these things are just by the book, right? So you know, I, I think I think many people have this experience. Uh, you know, my son loves my daughter completely, and yet is completely jealous of everything about her at the same time. Yeah, like he just wants to hug her and hold her, and then if he's not doing that, he wants to make sure we're attending to him and not her, <laughs> right? He wants to find some way to to get the spot. He's yanking the spotlight over, you know. But yeah, it did. That was a a revolution. It was a second revolution once 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 Dottie came. Once my my daughter Dorothy came. Yeah. Well, and it's only you know you've you've been through it so recently. So it's not like you've forgotten the stages. And it's so crazy how different it is between hmm. the boys and the girls. I'm I'm sure you've heard all of this many times before yeah i've heard it and i i I mean you know i don't know how much to attribute to the gender or not i will say that their personalities it sounds crazy but i'm there you can clearly tell the differences in personality between these two Mm -hmm. i mean my son just never like he he never stopped moving from from you know, out of the womb. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he never wants to sleep. He didn't want to sleep when he was a baby. He doesn't want to sleep now. Uh, he was like very early in all of his like uh, activities. You know, he was crawling super early and walking super early. Mm-hmm. And who knows what will happen with my daughter, but she seems much more chill. Like it is. Yeah. She sleeps a little bit better and she like clearly, you know, she really likes to sit there. Like she put on music and she, you can see her kind of like that getting into it uh-huh. a little bit just like kind of just, just like relaxing yeah and my my son just doesn't relax again i wouldn't i don't know if it has to do with the genders or not but i do know you know people say it and maybe there's projection going on uh but i'm convinced that you could just tell my son was going to be sort of a this like hyperkinetic kid mm-hmm. uh uh right away and my daughter doesn't seem that way we'll see um but uh you wouldn't mistake them at all at that age three months I, I can say that much that 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 they're definitely different. They're, they have different schedules and they have different attitudes. And I don't know how much that is maybe me being a little more, more relaxed around her and being so freaked out, mm. you know, when my son came mm-hmm. on every, every cough and whatever, I, you know, it's hard to tell. I don't, I don't know where to attribute it to. And maybe it'll completely reverse, but I will say the experience has been pretty profoundly different. Yeah. That's cool though. I mean, I think that gives you a different, like just a different viewpoint of everything. And I know that it was that way for us between our boy and our girl. I mean, a boy is a boy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he's being a boy. That's it's hard to argue with that. <laughs> oh, he's a boy. Yeah, yeah. No, he's a boy. And that, I will say, I mean, in terms of anxieties, I mean, that like goes back to my father. Goes back to I think to a lot of people. Just uh, you know, how how will I relate to my my daughter? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, now. I've been through enough to know I have to think about that with my son too, even if it seems easy. 
because it might seem easy on the things that are easy and right. that might might make it you know tempting to avoid the things that are hard which i'm cognizant of but i know it's it's different um but you know i mean me and me and my son we we you know, he's three years old. We're already, uh, you know, sort of knee deep in various sports activities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, that, that's very, very easy. That could well be the case that my daughter gravitates to the same things, but you know, could be, could be not. And no, uh, not at all. Yeah. I, I, you know, it could be for, you know, if you could, could happen with a boy also certainly, yeah. but, uh, that's what I, what I've got. And, and, uh, I do have, uh, I mean, I would be lying to say that I'm not a little bit anxious about, um, you know, will I be able to relate to her in the ways that, that I need to, mm-hmm. I feel like I, you know, of course, I think I'm up to it. You know, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have been so, so excited to have, have a second child if I wasn't ready for such a thing. Yeah. But, um, nonetheless, you know, there, there are challenges coming and, and, uh, I'm, extra nervous about those ones that will face my daughter for for a variety of reasons some about the world but some about you know what am i what am i equipped to uh be confident and uh in working with mm-hmm. yeah it's uh oh man parenting i mean <laughs> what else can you say like especially in this day and age there's just yeah, so oh much God. to think yeah. and worry about if you go down that road but just what it comes down to like just how you were kind of saying you you just kind of you kind of have to live and let them live a little too let let them do what they're gonna do and the stuff that you and they mesh perfectly on that's right that's a gift and a humongous bonus to us parents and the rest of the stuff i mean come on like we don't all want to watch like whatever girl show is going to be on when your daughter's old enough to be interested in that at between like six and eight years old. And I'm pretty sure that all the parents of little girls back in the day didn't really want to be at the Spice Girls concerts, but they still, they still went. And sometimes you've just got to work a little harder to get into their interests and just that fun Mm. of being with them and the fun of what, what happiness and joy that they find in it too. Like that is the reward that we as parents get to take from that. And, and that can be gold. Yeah, no, I mean, to me, if I'm, if I'm sort of taking a step back, it actually seems like an opportunity, right? And it seems like, um, a good way of avoiding some other problems as long as you're up for the work, right? It, it, the fact that it, it could be a little bit harder to get into interest potentially, uh, you know, yeah, uh, should make it a little bit more sort of uh, conscientious uh, thing to do. Whereas in, in some ways the, 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 it's, it's so natural with my son. I, I wonder if, you know, that, that mm-hmm. I might, this hard work to do also, right. To figure out where like there, there are needs that don't mesh. And, and yeah. I mean, this is, goes back to me and my father, right. I felt like, you know, he did a really good job with those things that clicked, but you know, I, I don't want to just do those things. And, and I guess if it doesn't click the same way with my daughter and we'll see that it, as long as I stick with it, right. Sort of ensures yeah. that I, I may be a, consider all the angles in a way that that could be tempting to not do um you know when it's easier so yeah uh it's exciting i mean i will say i mean i was definitely you're never ready to be a parent and that you don't know all the work and you don't know what kind of work it is but but i you know i was i was uh 
fully on board, right? There was no hesitance in, in being ready. And, uh, you know, I remain that way, way, waiting for my daughter. And, um, you know, I see this mostly as, you know, as long as, as long as I'm healthy and, and, uh, able, then, then this is a challenge I can do uh, a little bit scary, but, but it's, uh, I guess I see all the challenges as opportunities. It might be a little cliche, but, uh, you know, it took me a while to, to be ready to jump into this. But once I was, that, that was, that has been my attitude subsequently. Yeah. And also, always a good reminder for us that there are two parents so yeah it's not sure. all just on your shoulders so yeah well if, if if there are two parents right which i'm you know thank thank god that is uh that is the case uh yes and certainly um yeah right and i think the real important reminder is there it's not only that there's that there's two but there's going to be stuff that you're that you're bad at and you know <laughs> if you know first thing to, to check is if if your partner is good at it uh, and you know, if, if, mm-hmm. if so, that's, um, yep. You know, All praise uh, to the uh, wives does. It's, it, it's a great, it's a great relief when, when so often that is the case that my, my weaknesses are, are covered by my wife's strengths. I, I try to do that every episode now and not forget. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want, I, I don't want people to think like before I recorded my first episode, my wife one night said mm. to me, so are you doing this podcast so you and all of these guys that you're talking with can just sit around and bitch about us wives? <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no that yeah. is not at all what this is about. So anyways, no, I mean, we could, we could do that podcast <laughs> yeah. if you want. <laughs> yeah. That's my <laughs> underground <laughs> podcast. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like going to a rave. You have to go to like four or five different spots and get a little Secret sheet codes. of paper from someone that tells you the place to go to next. And uh, finally, you'll end up in a warehouse with a bunch of other people in funny clothes. And some of them will have <laughs> big Mickey Mouse hands and glow sticks in their mouths. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I, what I would say is that, uh, at least in my experience, while of course you can do that, that that's not a parenting podcast. Uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a different, that's a different kind of podcast, but yeah. Well, I, I think we successfully ran the gamut here very well. We, uh, we definitely got into some deep dark corners here, but yeah, I think this felt really good question mark. I, it definitely healthy, I would say. And I, I obviously appreciate not only your openness with yeah. it all for yeah, this, so. but I, I appreciate so. that you have that ability with it as well. And I, I truly and sincerely like I'm in your corner and rooting for you on this path that you're on. And I tell this sometimes to people and I feel dumb saying it, but I really am very proud of you and the work that you're doing, Matt, like, honestly, this, the step, even just to have the chutzpah to make the efforts to become a dad yourself, like that's, that's huge, you know? No, thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to think about this at such a, uh, uh, what I hope is a deep level. Yeah. So we will tell people that they can and should follow you on your Twitter which is at Media Studied. 
That's media studied past tense. And we will have stuff on the website on daddyunscripted.com for this episode specifically. And it'll be here in the show notes for this episode for all the things that you can find of Matt, like the Comedy Studies Reader and other such things, other books, etc. All right. Well, thanks again for taking all the time with us for this conversation, Matt. No, thanks very much. Okay, and that is the end of my conversation with Matt Sinkowitz. Again, I can't say enough. Thank you, Matt, for sitting and talking with me. Thank you for being as open to the direction all of that went into. It was probably more surprising. I don't know who it was more surprising. Does it really matter? It was surprising to me. I was expecting us to talk actually a lot about comedy. It really ended up going in a different direction than I thought with all of the conversation about his dad, but it just, it really felt important to me to kind of tap into that a little bit. And again, Matt, amazing, amazing story. And I'm so happy that you're doing so well with your little family now out there in Massachusetts. Again, thank you so much, Matt. Like I said, you should check him out on Twitter, find his books, look him up. I've put a lot of stuff in the show notes for you guys to check out as well, and also information on my site at daddyunscripted.com. Look for him on Twitter at Media Studied, and you can find all kinds of cool things that he has done, books that he has written. And again, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You can find Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all as Daddy Unscripted. You can leave me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. You can leave me a review and a rating on iTunes. That would be awesome. Leave me a rating on there, whatever star rating you want to leave me, and just say something nice in there. I will gobble that up. I will say yet again, thank you so much to Umphreys McGee for letting me have their music on this podcast, which means so much to me. And I've listened to some of my older episodes and I'm like, thank God that I reached out to Umphreys McGee and thank God that they are so cool and were able to help make that partnership happen so that their music is on my podcast now. So check out umphreys.com. I'm sure that they are playing music probably right now, whether it's them or they're getting ready to go on tour and they're just practicing in their homes. But check out umphreys.com to find out when that may be. And remember, I welcomed you here tonight to this episode in ancient Greek. And now I will bid you goodbye in that same way so kaire pola which is cheers or good health i hope you all have a great week the next episode should be out in just another couple weeks or so so keep an eye out for that one thanks you guys (laughs) 